All right, so we're looking at Romans chapter 10, and we'll be looking tonight at verses 1 through 15. We began looking at verses 1 through 4 last time, but I would love it if somebody's willing to read uh, the text tonight, Romans 10, 1 through uh, 15. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. <clears throat> For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches <clears throat> on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, so we are looking at the problem uh, of the Jewish people and the fact that they are almost universally rejecting the gospel. We say almost because in every generation there are Jewish people physically descended from Abraham, who are believers in Christ. And Paul will claim that of himself. God has not rejected his people. I'm a Jew myself. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, etc. So we'll get to that in chapter 11. But it's still a problem because God had a long, developed, careful history with the Jewish people, culminating in the, in the, um, uh, the gift of his son, the only begotten son of God, Jesus Christ, um, who came to the Jews, um, said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews. He said to the Syrophoenician woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Focus on the Jews. And yet they rejected him. Uh, they condemned him officially as a blasphemer, handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. They rejected him. And then after Pentecost, when the gospel started to move out and to spread from Jerusalem through Judea, uh, they almost universally rejected that message. Not all of them, many believed. Uh, but you think about 3,000 added to their number that day, but there were hundreds of thousands of pilgrims that had come to Jerusalem for the Passover and for the Pente Pentecost. So a very small percentage of them believed, and most of them didn't. And so Paul's addressing that. And uh, he knows that it could uh, in some way uh, impugn the gospel itself, like there's something wrong with the gospel or impugn Christ, something's wrong with Jesus or impugn God himself, as though God's word has somehow failed. And so he's addressing that in, in these three chapters. And he begins by saying, look, first and foremost, I am deeply concerned about my own people. I have great sorrow in my heart. I am in anguish over them. This is a big problem. 
uh, individual Jews who live their whole lives rejecting Christ when they die will be condemned to eternity apart from him, as Jesus clearly taught. Very, very plain. The plainest speaking about hell came from the mouth of Jesus, and he was talking again to his own people. He was deeply concerned about that, and so was the Apostle Paul. So his great sorrow. He goes through their uh, spiritual advantages. They have many spiritual advantages. He'd also given sim a similar list in chapter 3. So they have tremendous advantages, but they don't save. Those advantages are not saving. Most of the people throughout the generations who had those advantages were not saved. You know, Paul makes this very point in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10. You know, Israel went through the Red, Red, Red Sea, and they went through the desert, and they ate the manna, and they drank the water from the rock, but most of them died in the desert. All right, a picture of condemnation and rejection by God because of unbelief. And so just because you're descended from Abraham physically doesn't save you. So he's deeply concerned about that, but he's more concerned, first and foremost, about the question, has God's word failed? And he completely sets that aside. It's not as though God's word has failed. That's not what's happening here. If God intended to save them in that kind of decreeing way, in that kind of sovereign way, they'd be saved. Nothing can stop them. But there's nothing, nothing is too hard for God. He can convert anyone anytime. So that's not it. And so therefore we have to look at the issue of God's sovereign freedom in salvation and God's sovereignty in, in salvation. And fundamentally, God gives salvation to whomever he chooses. And if God chooses to give you salvation, you're going to be saved. And if he chooses not to, you're going to be hardened and you will not be saved. And so there's these two categories of people. There are vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. And God has mercy on the one throughout their lives, not just uh, at the moment of conversion, but I mean from infancy until they die. It's just one big lavish mercy from God, everything. Because we know people are complex. People's experiences are complex. And so the homes that they're raised in, the little things that happen in their lives, all of them tend toward the end of them coming to faith in Christ if they are elect. And then conversely, the same is opposite of the vessels of wrath. So the Esau's, the Pharaoh types, et cetera, they're being hardened. And so he goes through that this, these two categories. Um, but here at the end in chapter 9, he says, uh, let's, let's kind of sum up where we're at here. We do have these two categories of people. But what, what have we seen? Now? He says the Gentiles who did not pursue uh, righteousness have obtained it. They're pursuing pagan lusts and orgies and wickedness and idolatry and you know paganism. And yet many of them have obtained a perfect righteousness by repenting and believing in Jesus without any kind of lead up gospel came to town, Thessalonica or Berea or Athens or Corinth. And some of them believed and now they're going to heaven. They're in a much better position than the unbelieving Jews are. So they, they obtained a righteousness that is by faith through the gospel. But Israel that was pursuing day by day, a law of righteousness has not attained righteousness. They didn't get it. Why not? Because they pursued it by works not by faith they pursued righteousness as if they could gain it by works and that's just never going to happen and then he says again at the end of romans 9 they stumbled over the stumbling stone and that stumbling stone is christ ultimately christ is the stumbling stone but christ also represents god officially saying to them you can't save yourselves you need a savior I didn't come to call the righteous. That's not why I came to earth, because you all are righteous. 
I came because you needed me. And if they're going to accept that, they have to accept that their own righteousness isn't enough. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will by no means enter heaven in the Sermon on the Mount. So you need a greater righteousness. Well, they stumbled over it, stumbled over Christ. And then he quotes this uh, scripture at the end of Romans 9, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Well, I quote that again because Paul's uh, going to pick up on it in the very thing that Ben read. You know, it, it comes down to faith, trusting in Christ. All right, so then we go over to chapter 10, and Paul begins, as we talked about last time, with his earnest prayer for the Jews. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Now, just stop and think about this. You know about Paul's history with the Jews, right? Very carefully recorded in the book of Acts. All right, not all the Jews, but there were some very zealous Jews, and he's talking about them here. I can testify that they're zealous for God, right? So let's talk about the ones that were really zealous once Paul was converted. How did they treat Paul? I'm talking about the really ardent, zealous Jews. Zealously. All right, meaning what? Badly, right? They treated them like he was an outcast. Exactly. Basically, they treated him the way he treated people before he was converted. All right, he got the same treatment, right? So they were, at the human level, they were his bitter enemies. Would you agree? I mean, they were his enemies. They were plotting to kill him. They were. Remember the ones that, that took that oath to not eat or drink until they had assassinated him? I mean, this wasn't theoretical. What does... Romans 10.1 show you about loving your enemies. Think about that. Think about what Paul's saying here. What is he saying here? And he's already, we already covered it in chapter 9, but we see it again in chapter 10. What is Paul's attitude toward these people who hate his guts and want him dead? What would he like for them? That they may be saved. That they would be saved. He wants to spend eternity with them in heaven. Think about that. I want to be with you forever in heaven. Now, what do you learn about that? What does that teach you about the grace of God working in Paul's life? Well, I, I, I read this biography on Paul. It was written by N.T. Wright. And he was talking, there's one chapter in there that was a real eye-opener for me in particular. It was a chapter on zeal and why the Jewish people were, you know, why Paul was the way he was. And it had to do with the story of Phineas, and you probably remember that. And yeah. how, they, how Phineas and his zeal, I don't remember what all he did, but it was violent. It was a violent. Yeah, he shoved a spear through an Israelite who was having sex with a Midianite woman, I think. So they took, took him out with one spear thrust. Yeah, so in the. That was Phineas. That, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well, you asked. You said, I don't remember what happened. Anyway, that's what happened. <laughs> so anyway, so Paul was a zealous Jew. So he was, had, and it was described in that way, in the zeal that Phineas had. And, and so he was violent, and he violently persecuted the Christians in the name of his zeal, which he thought was pleasing to God. Yeah. And, you know, this, this is his way of honoring God. Yeah. So now here he is, and these men are being zealous. These people are being zealous, and he's on the receiving end of this zeal, yeah. parenthesis zeal, 
that would make him, I think he understood them, he got yeah. them, and that he, and then he probably could have put himself in their shoes because he was in their shoes once upon a time, right. and he'd been saved by the grace of God out of that, and I think that was, that all that mercy that had been shown to him, he was ready. Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah, so he understood them. He was like them himself. But I think it's amazing how Christ-like he is. You know, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus said that. Stephen, when being martyred, said, Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. Don't hold this against them. This is, this is that Christian teaching of loving your enemies, praying for those who hate you. So, go ahead. Um, I came across, uh, I was reminded just this week of another just extraordinary example to see a story of a, a Jacob the Shazer, who was one of King Bruder's raiders who bombed uh, Japan in April of, uh, after Pearl Harbor. And he was captured, uh, landed, uh, and was captured and spent the war in the Japanese prison camp. And was brutally tortured, treated, uh, watched good friends, uh, great story. And I think we're going to spend eternity uh, studying those kinds of stories. But, you know, it's that Christ-like attitude of loving your enemies. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a unique teaching to Christianity. Buddhism doesn't have anything like this. Hinduism, you know, love your neighbors yourself. There are different versions of that. But love your, love your enemies? No, that's Christianity. Uh, but that's God, you know, Jesus says, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And also we look at people and think, what could the grace of God do in this person's life? What could happen if God's grace got hold of him? What a great story that would be. And so Paul sees that. Now, if I can just give a bookends here, Romans 10.1 and Romans 10.15 basically tell us what we're supposed to do about all these things, not just with the Jews, but with Gentiles too. Our, our calling is to do what? Based on verse 1 and then also in verse 15 or verse 13 through 15. What are, we, what are we supposed to, what's our job? Pray for our enemies, love them. So pray for unconverted people that they would be saved. All right? Maybe not all our enemies. They might just be, uh, you know, unsaved relatives. But I was saying enemies because they were Paul's enemies. And then what else? What's our other responsibility in this whole matter? Share the gospel. Share the gospel. That's what he's going to advocate. Somebody's got to go and tell these people. And that's what he's been doing. And so that's, and, and I want you to see that, that's after the clearest articulation on eternal predestination and reprobation in the whole Bible. 
elect and reprobate. It's, it's a fact, but that's to some degree none of our business. To some degree. To some degree, it helps us knowing that there are elect people who will most certainly end up converted should give power to your prayer and power to your evangelism and missions. But in terms of who they are, that's not our concern. That's something only God. We're supposed to know about it. But we have a job to do, and that job is laid out here, and that's to pray and to evangelize. Go ahead. You are going to say something. No, I was going to go back to, like, the um, first thing you mentioned about, you know, especially Christians. We have this expectation. We forget. We see people with expectations and titles, like, this is my mother, so she should behave a certain way. This is a church, so they should behave a certain way. And I was just watching the other day what somebody wrote on a church review. This is not a real Christian church. These people are not nice. They're very judgmental. And I thought about it, and I said, we have this expectation for people, but when we focus on God, it doesn't bother us when our sister betrays us. or not. As, it, it hurts, but we're more like, okay, you betrayed me. You hurt me. But when Jesus focused on God, he understood that those people are falling people. And they're not, they could love you today and hate you tomorrow, you know? And people, they're like, they look warm, you know? They're like, women, they're hot and they're cold. So when you understand that, I think when you put faith in God and not men, then you're not, your focus is on him. You're not as hurt when people betray you because you kill off that expectation that they're supposed to be a certain way. They're supposed to be loving and kind and not betray me. Right. I think that's what Paul is doing, just as Jesus did. Um, he's unbothered and unaffected by the abuse and the mistreatment. And um, he just didn't have any expectations and for men, but kept his faith in God and knew that God would be faithful. Yeah, and it also gives you an opportunity. You know, if you treat somebody kindly who's slapping you in the face or persecuting you, it's, it's a powerful impact. Maybe not necessarily even on them, but on people watching. They just realize this is a supernatural behavior. I would never do that. But, you know, when Christians are in the Colosseum and they're about to get ravaged by lions and all that, and they're on their knees praying for people that are persecuting them, it, it makes an impact. All right, next, just theologically, we don't pray despite the fact that there are eternally elect people. We pray because the, that there are. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't mean I don't need to pray because God has chosen before the foundation of the world who's going to be saved and who isn't. So therefore, prayer has no impact. Paul didn't think like that. Paul prayed all the more. And I would say also he evangelized all the more because of the doctrine of election. All right? Because again, we don't know who they are. You're talking about an unconverted person, that vast pool of unconverted humanity. You cannot tell the difference at all between an unconverted elect person and an unconverted reprobate. They behave the same. So you don't know who they are, and so you pray. And, and so prayer for uh, people to be saved. And this is something we should do. We, you should have a prayer list. You should have people that you know, unsaved relatives, neighbors, coworkers, and, and you should be praying for them for salvation. That's what I get out, out of verse 1. And then as we talked about, I can testify about them. They're zealous for God, so they're on fire. They're burning. And it's not just Jews, but we got zealous Muslims. you got zealous Buddhists. you got zealous Hindus. You know, wherever there's like vicious religious-based persecution, those people are zealous. And it happens in India with Hindus. They're nationalistic people, and they're killing uh, missionaries. Um, you know, it happens happen all over the world. And so there's this tremendous zeal for their religion or zeal, zeal for God, but that zeal is not going to save them. You know, it's not, 
it's, it's not going to save them. Because if the, that, that zeal, that passion is not based on truth, then it's, it's really serving Satan. You know, I mean, it's, that's it. If, it's, if they've got a zeal for God, but it's not the real God of the Bible, and it's not the real gospel, they're actually servants of Satan, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. So they, uh, their, their zeal uh, is not, gonna, it's not based on knowledge. And what is it they didn't know? Well, they didn't know the gospel. They didn't know where righteousness actually comes from. Look at verse 3. They did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. So they didn't know the core of the gospel, which is imputed righteousness through faith in Christ to helpless people, broken people, lost people who have nothing to offer, spiritual beggars. They didn't know anything about that. They didn't know that righteousness. But they sought to establish their own. Now, how do they do that? How do they establish their own righteousness? to keep the law okay and fundamental to that would be a form of boasting wouldn't it be if you if you did it you thought you had done it you would you would boast about it and again i said this last week the parable of the of the pharisee and tax collector is a good picture of two different kinds of people right the the pharisee i thank you god that i'm not like other men i mean just that right there says everything i'm better than other people and how much more would that be consummated and perfected in heaven if that was the whole system? I thank you, God, that I'm in heaven and not hell, not like all these people, all right? It's arrogance, it's boastfulness, and it's based on achievement, self-achievement. So that's, that's, they're, they're trying to establish their own righteousness, prove their own righteousness. Um, and so therefore, Paul says, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What does that word mean to you, submit? They didn't submit to God's righteousness. What does the word mean? Just submit. Uh, you submit when you acknowledge an authority and you, you bend your will towards it. Okay. Yielding to it. Or you yield into it. Yeah. Okay. So how is converting faith, salvation, a form of submission? A submission to, to God's uh, righteousness. Acknowledging that his righteousness is the only way for you to be cleansed and to be with him forever. Yeah. You got to kill your pride. You got to say, I have no hope. You got to be a spiritual beggar. You got to say, I'm sick. I need a spiritual physician. And that there's a submission to that where you're yielding to that. You're submitting to God's righteousness and you're not going to put yourself forward. You're going to yield to it. And also there's a basic obedience. There's a command. The, the, the gospel has a basic command in it. Mark 1.15 the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Those are commands. So you have to repent of your sins. You have to turn away from yourself and your wickedness and all your evil. Turn away and turn to a Savior who did everything for you on the cross and at the empty tomb. You have to submit to that. It's a submission. And they wouldn't do it. They stumbled over that. They didn't want that. So they, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. And we talked about this last time. Christ is the end, the telos of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So I gave you three options on what the word end could mean. Uh, one is Christ is the purpose of the law. 
The law was given to take you or bring you to Christ. All right? So the law was given as, as a schoolmaster to bring you to Christ, this kind of thing, to teach you that you couldn't save yourself. All right? Or Christ is the uh, perfection of the law in that he perfectly obeyed it, fulfilled it, and offers that perfect righteousness to you as a gift so that there may be righteousness for you by faith. That sounds good. Or how about this? Christ is the end of the law, meaning he put an end to it. By his death on the cross, he ended forever the ceremonial law, the center of which was animal sacrifice, blood sacrifice, finished. No need for that anymore. So which of those three beautiful options would you like? Christ is the end of the law in that he teaches you that you're wicked and you need a savior. Christ is the end of the law in that he is the perfect fulfillment of it and offers that to you as perfect righteousness as a free gift. Or Christ put an end to the animal sacrifice and that whole system and brought us into a new covenant whereby sins are forgiven. What do you think? I have a triple scoop. There you go. <laughs> three for the price of one. Now, you know I do this. If you got two really good options or three, take them all. <laughs> take them all. And there are verses that teach each of those three things. What Paul had in mind by this one, it's hard to tell. The word telos is a very rich word, and it's hard to tell, and people have different opinions. But I, I'm like, yeah, we'll go with Tom. We'll go with the three scoops, all right? And it's not even going to, you know, well, make you fat or something like that. You know, three scoops of ice cream. You can enjoy all of them. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, the law beats you up if you look at it properly, and, and, and you like, all right. And when I preach, like, on the two great commandments, you know how... I quoted Spurgeon, the gist is, you could as easily vault from the Himalayans up to the mountains as keep the two great commandments. I'm going to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment of my life, the rest of my life. No, you're not. It won't last an hour. And, and you're going to try to love your neighbor as yourself. You are fanatically committed to your self-interest. And if you would have one afternoon in which you thought other, others about like you think about yourself, that would be a great day for you. <laughs> you're not going to keep these laws. They're going to crush you. They're going to make you, they're going to show you what you really are. So anyway, those, uh, any thoughts on this? 10-4 is a beautiful, a beautiful statement. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Yes. You spoke about how this uh, kills boasting, mm -hmm. and I, I guess my mind goes quickly to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, mm -hmm. by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not, a, not, not as a result of works with anyone should boast. So. Yeah, and this seems to be just such a huge theme. God doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't want to feel like he owed you salvation, like it was a wage. He wanted to just give it to you freely. He didn't want you to, he didn't want to owe it to you. And so when you work as a wage, you get what you're owed, right? It's, it's paid to you as a wage. That's Romans 4. He's not doing it that way. God doesn't owe this to anybody. And he doesn't want to listen to boasting in heaven, except in himself. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's it. So that's, that's the tendency. All right, let's go now to 5, five through 13. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by law. Now, what we're looking at is two different ways of salvation. Salvation by law or salvation by 
faith, basically. He's going to zero into faith. He doesn't mention grace here, but we know that it's all part of that same package. So there's these two different ways, and, and he's going to describe them in two different ways, all right? So first, Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by law. You want to know how that salvation works? The man who does these things will live by them. That's um, Leviticus 18.5, I think it is. And it's said many other places. Ezekiel says it like multiple times. You know, the law by which a man will live if he keeps them, this kind of thing. He says it again and again. All right, so what does this mean? The righteousness that is by law is described this way. The man who does these things will live by them. It sounds good, right? It's like, what do you live by? You know, what's your, what's your, your moral code and all that? Is that what Paul means by this? What does he mean, the man who does these things will live by them? Does it mean when you, you will be judged by the level of which you can live by, do them? Okay, all right. The man who does these things will live by them. Well, when he says live, is he talking about, um, my question would be, uh, what kind of, how do you define that word live? Does it mean uh, be spiritually alive, or does it mean following you know, yeah. Well, I mean, it could have two things. All right. Well, let's think about like the purpose of the gospel. You know, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing might have what? Life. Life. Yeah. As opposed to death. death. So, yeah. Let's put it this way. Let's let's say you're kind of like a, on the sands of the Colosseum. You're a gladiator, and you've lost, and you're your enemy is standing over you and looks up at the emperor and he gives thumbs up or thumbs down. So what did that mean? Thumbs up. You live. you live, thumbs down, you die. So let's picture that. All right. Go to judgment day, heaven or hell. I think that's what we're talking about here. Moses describes in this way, the man, who, the, the, the righteousness that is by law, what the Jews are trying to attain. They want to be accepted by God as righteous by keeping the law, by doing these things. That's it. So you want to survive on judgment day? Keep the law. Right? That's it. That's, that's that religion. Religion of works. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? Remember how the rich young ruler asked that? That's it. That sums it all up. What must I do? All right? So do these things. What are these things? What does Moses mean by the man who does these things will live by them? What things? The total law. All of it. Not part of it, because the same God, James says, the same God who said you shall not murder, he also said you shall not commit adultery. Well, those are just two of the commands. Just go to all ten. Let's just keep it simple. Ten commandments. Just do those, right? Like Jesus gave the rich young rule. You know the commandments. Well, ten commandments. Just do those. That sound good to you guys? <laughs> None of that. I don't want those scoops. Right. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, Jesus told us the problem. The problem isn't just outward compliance. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at what? The heart. And I've said to you this, this to you before, Jesus is not out of bounds here. He's not ramping it up to law 2.0, like higher level law. No, this was built into the 10 commandments. 
It was built into the 10th commandment. What is the 10th commandment? You shall not covet. That's a heart state, isn't it? And nothing but a heart state. It may lead to theft. It may lead to other things. But in and of itself, it's nothing but heart. And God has the right to make that law because he can enforce it. He knows whether you've coveted or not. Jesus took that concept and just extended it to all of them. All of them. What is going on in your heart? You have heard that it was said you shall not murder, but it's not enough to just not physically murder. You have to not murder in your heart. And the same thing with adultery. You have to not lust. And then you go on, you know, and, and then you start looking at each of the Ten Commandments. It's like a commitment to truth, telling the truth, but all men are liars. How are you going to survive that one? You can't survive the Ten Commandments. I mean, you zero in on Sabbath keeping, right? How'd the Jews do on that? What was that like? The whole, let's, I tell you what, let's just work on one of the Ten Commandments. We're going to do Sabbath really well. How did they do with that? Would you want to live under the Pharisaical Sabbath regulations? That was horrible. That was an, it was a, an affliction. It was a burden, right? And they couldn't even figure it out for themselves because if they lost a sheep or a donkey or something in a ditch, they're going to pull it out, right? This whole thing. So they're inconsistent. And I'm sure they wrangled over it, you know, and argued about Sabbath regulations. But that was just one of the commandments. And that was the positive one. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, right? So I mean, they couldn't keep these commandments. So the man who does these things will live if he has kept them perfectly his entire life. By the time you understand these words, it's too late for you. It's too late. What can you do about your past sins? I said this last week. What can you do about your heart state? You can't do anything about either one. The record is the record and your heart is your heart. And the law doesn't change either one of those things. All it does is it weaponizes them against you and kills you. It hunts you down and kills you. So that's the righteousness that is by law. The man who does these things will live if he keeps them perfectly, but he doesn't. All right, conversely, the righteousness that is by faith says, now here we get into some interesting things. Like, where does this come from? I know where it comes from. It comes from Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. Paul's quoting Deuteronomy 30. All right? I gave it to you in your handout, I think, somewhere. All right. Yeah, my pagination is different than yours. Can someone read Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14? We'll compare it to what Paul writes in Romans, Romans 10. You know, I'm commanding you today. Uh, now, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you will have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. Now, this thing has been frying my brain all afternoon. <laughs> all right, and uh, for a lot of reasons. And I asked Andy and Wes this earlier, and, and we talked about it for a while. I guess we were satisfied with our answer. I don't know. Here's the question I want to ask you. Is salvation easy or not? Yes. It's easy. No, I'm answering yes to both questions. Yes. All right, well, just look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Just that one verse. What is, what is Moses saying there? 
Just, just verse 11. Now, it is not difficult, which another way of saying that is easy. But Moses is talking about the law here. So I'm like, I'm scratching my head trying to work this out. And, you know, I'm supposed to have it figured out before 6.30 on Wednesday, Wednesday night, all right? What in the world is he talking about? And does Paul, when he quotes this, does he say Moses was wrong, it's really hard? No, he says it's actually even easier now than it ever was before. Because he links Christ to the law. You see that? He's quoting Deuteronomy 30, and he's saying, look, if it wasn't difficult back then, how much easier is it now that Christ has descended from heaven to save us, and he has died on the cross and been raised from the dead to justify us? How easy is that? It's all been done for you. It made me think of the Heidelberg uh, uh, disputation, which I quoted here. Look at uh, number 26. It's on your handout here, but this is Martin Luther kind of summarizing his understanding of justification by faith apart from works. The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. Isn't that in effect, in effect what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished? It's perfect. It's finished, whole thing. And I'm, I'm going to give it to you as a gift, freely. All you have to do is believe it, and it's yours. So to me, this seems easy. It seems like the whole ethos here is this is easy. But we know it's not, right? It's, it's actually impossible. So, so here's how I figured it out, all right? If God doesn't convert you, it's impossible. If God converts you, it is easy to be saved. It's easy. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go pick some rare wildflower on the Himalayan mountainside and bring it back to New York. I mean, if you had to, you'd do it, right? If it meant heaven instead of hell, you'd do it. If you had to do some bizarre, weird pilgrimage or some other thing, and people do this kind of stuff. Even now, the Muslims make a pilgrimage to Mecca if they can afford it. They'll do these kind of works to try to save themselves and try to do these pilgrimages and all that. You don't have to do any of that. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go up in the heaven or down in the depths or on the far side of the sea. You don't need to do anything. The word is here. It's right near you. All you have to do is believe it. And you'll go to heaven. But it's the very thing they can't do if God doesn't convert them. You see what I'm saying? So that's, that's why I've been trying to figure out, trying to figure out, is salvation easy or hard? And the answer is yes. It is, it is easy, but it's impossible. I mean, Jesus himself said concerning the rich, rich man, you know, the camel through the eye of the needle, remember all that, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things, not just possible, but it's done. If God wants to save, you're going to get saved. So that's how I make sense of it. Any thoughts on this? It's interesting what, what, what Paul does to this quote from Deuteronomy, right? He adds the Jesus stuff. He mixes it in. You know, it's, it, it, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? You know, I have to go up there and persuade Jesus to come down from heaven to earth to save us. No, it's already done. He did that. You didn't have to do that. He's already come. 
And, and you don't have to go down into the depth. Well, Deuteronomy doesn't say the depths. It says the far side of the sea, like some distant area. But Paul changed it a bit, or it might have been a Septuagint thing. But at any rate, it said going down to bring Christ up from the dead. No, he's already done that. Christ has already defeated death. So the work is done. Once he was alive, yeah, easiest thing, yeah, in the world. But conversely, you remember that story in John 5 about the paralyzed guy who's by that pool, that, that if you were the first to get in it, you would be, you know, you'd be cured. But if you're quadriplegic, you have a basic problem, right? <laughs> I mean, you can watch that water be stirred day after day. You're never going to be the first in there. You can't move. So you think this is an easy thing, but if you can't move, you can't move. And so that's the, the picture we have of our condition unless God cures us. But, you know, basically what Paul's doing here is he's saying Christ has fulfilled the Mosaic law for us. That's why he brings Christ into it, into Deuteronomy 30. Yeah. So I think what makes this passage often difficult for Christians to understand is that, um, you know, Paul usually has adversaries who are into legalistic observance of the law, but there's also a faithful observance, and he doesn't usually touch on that aspect. So for him, the law becomes... Because it becomes an instrument of salvation, and it can be, from a legalistic observant kind of point of view, it becomes the, the opposite of the gospel. But I think Paul understands that the law had the gospel in it. The, the whole sacrificial system was a typological presentation of salvation, right? The love of God uh, who takes away the sin of the world. And here is a place where he really touches on that. And uh, if you look at uh, uh, the chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, he has a whole salvation history. He talks about the unfaithful Israel is going to be cast out. God will bring them back to the land. He will circumcise your hearts, mm -hmm. and then you will obey the law, all the commandments. So what he's really talking about there is a faithful, I mean, a faithful observance of the law. And if from that point of view, Christ is the essence of that law. That's the reason why he, wants to, you know, he talks to the uh, Israelites, he says, you don't have to go anywhere to get the law. God has given you the privilege of having the law and the covenants, the, the temple service. Mm -hmm. All of that is, the, in its essence, is the gospel. And, uh, and therefore, it is easy. He's, he's exhorting them to a faithful observance who embracing the law by faith, um, which is what God will do eventually when he, in the new covenant, circumcises the hearts. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's wonderful because he's, he's really, you know, he's, he, he's not importing Christ into that passage. He's really extracting the essence of the passage, which is, which is Christ. Yeah, and that makes sense because, you know, Paul, Paul says in Romans 3, but now righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which... The law and the prophets testify. It's not contradictory. It was always there. But not this way. Not do these things meticulously. And, and they all knew they didn't. But they said, well, we got the animal sacrificial system for when we mess up. It's like, oh, really? You offer an animal sacrifice every time you violate the covetous, coveting law? No, just from time to time. So that mess, that little hot mess, you're going to present that to God on Judgment Day, that's what you're going to offer, it's not going to work. So you're right, if you see it properly, faith is in there. Perfection's in there too, the need for perfection, and you don't have it. That's why the animal sacrificial system was established, pointing ultimately to Christ. Thank you, very helpful. All right, so fundamentally, the word live, yeah, go ahead, brother. Do you think Moses meant the same thing when he wrote it at the time that he wrote it? What did Moses know? What did he understand? 
mean the same thing as you think it means? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what Old Testament Bible writers understood. I mean, to me, the key character in this is always Daniel, where Daniel's like, "What was that?" And he's told, "Don't worry about it." And then Peter picks up on that and says, the Old Testament writers were told that they weren't serving themselves but you. So I think they had a limited understanding, but not a full understanding. But there's no doubt, based on Hebrews 11, that Moses saw Christ. And he anticipated Christ and trusted in Christ. He's a believer in Christ. He was serving the Christ who would come later. And, uh, you know, Jesus openly said, Moses wrote about me. You know, so yeah, I think he understood, but I don't know they had a full development. All right, so fundamentally with this whole bring Christ down uh, up from the dead, all those things, what it's saying is the work has been done for you. Christ did it all. All you need to do is believe in a word that is very near you. It's very near you. And, and here's the statement. This is the word of faith that we're proclaiming. And now he sums it up in the New Covenant language, the New Testament language, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Any of you ever heard that verse before? <laughs> like, got to be like one of the most famous evangelistic verses there is. But it's with good reason. This is what we're presenting when we share the gospel, but it's no small thing. What does it mean Jesus is Lord? How would the Jews have understood that statement? Jesus is Lord. God. Deity, God, like the God that said, let there be light. That's what Lord means. They believe in, they were monotheists. Lord meant God. Do you have to believe in the deity of Christ in order to be saved. Yes, you do. You have to believe in the deity of Christ. My Jehovah's Witness verse, John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, Jesus said to his enemies. For if you do not believe that I am, ego eimi, you will die in your sins. There's That's overt claim to deity. You have to believe that I am, or you will die in your sins. It's not an option. By the end of that chapter, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. Open claim to deity. Yeah, go ahead. So, um, for people that are still engaging in sin, you know, like, see if there's, like, um, prostitutes or, you know, just people commit in sin and they die in their sin, but they believe in Jesus. What do you say to that? Because I know a lot of people I know that struggle with sin, and they're like, I, I, I don't know. Like, you might have your last moment in sin, but you believe in Jesus. You just struggle well, I'm, go? I'm, not the, I'm not the judge of all the earth. Jesus is, all right? But do they, do you, no, I think like, so I'm, I'm confused because I'm trying to think that if you believe in God, you believe he died on a cross, he rose the third day, and Jesus is God. But you struggle with sin, and the day you die, you're still kind of in sin, but you gave your life to Jesus, and he understood your heart that you struggled. What, like, is it, is it, you still, God is still going to, I'm trying to, I think I'm trying to understand it a little more because people... Well, I can tell you right now, there's not a... Right. There's not a person in this room that's going to die pure. Okay, right. In your performance, all right? However, it does say in 1 Corinthians 6, concerning sexual sin, do not be deceived. And then lists sexual sins and all that. 
those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a strong call there to repentance. Now you think about Corinth, what's going on there? And he's specifically talking to Corinthian Christians to stop visiting temple prostitutes. And he's saying, you've got to stop. And he's not like, this is an option for you guys. You're not going to struggle with this. So I'm not, I'm not offering struggling with it as an option. You've got to stop. I mean, because they're walking by the temple prostitutes every day. They had to stop that whole lifestyle. That's what 1 Corinthians 6 is, isn't it? I mean, that whole chapter. You can't take the body of Christ and join it with a prostitute because the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you can't join that together because you become one flesh with her. That's all 1 Corinthians 6. So what I want to say is, look, I'm not their judge. Nobody's pure and perfect, but there is a strong call there to repentance from sexual sin and from other sins, and that they would not be deceived into thinking, I believed in Jesus, you know, I'm still, I'm still a Christian even though I'm doing porn or I'm doing, you know, I'm a prostitute. That's not, that's not an option offered in 1 Corinthians 6. So for me as a pastor, for you as a friend, you got to say, you got to do everything you can to put that to death. You got to come up out of that lifestyle. Don't be deceived. What does that mean when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived, and then lists people that will not inherit the kingdom of God? What does the word deceive mean? It reminds me of the Proverbs that talk about a man holding fire close to his chest, thinking he's not going to be burned. This idea that we think we can handle more than we can, or we can get just as close as we want to the edge and still be all right. Yeah, God is forgiving. Christians are not judgmental, this whole thing. If you're judgmental, you're not a good Christian like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, I, I don't know how, like, I, <laughs> I felt that Ezekiel was kind of a judgmental person. <laughs> I mean, I thought the prophets in general were kind of judgmental. What do you think? I mean, I thought John the Baptist, did he come off as being judgmental from time to time? How about Jesus himself? So I, I just, it's just the culture we live in now is very tolerant and permissive of sexual sin and of all types. And, and the thing, the only thing asked of Christians is to not be judgmental. That's not biblical. We're calling people to come up out of that lifestyle. We're t- telling them to not be deceived about it. But again, I'm not the person's judge. If you're talking about somebody who's, who's struggled and all that, we all struggle. But I'm just. Is it judgmental to tell them the truth? No. Right? No. I, I hear people that want to commit sin say that all the time. Oh, you're judging me. And I'm like, no, it's in the Bible. It's not judging you, it's the truth. Well, they're going to judge people, though. If, I mean, they, like, everybody still acknowledges that rape is wicked. So they're going to judge a rapist. They're just not consistent. So they're going to judge people that don't match up with their moral standard. They'll judge them. So my question is, is like, look, first of all, when Jesus says, do not judge or you'll be judged, what he means there is do not, he doesn't say do not make evaluations because in this exact same chapter, he's telling us to judge wolves in sheep's clothing and by their fruit, you'll know them. False teachers, right? You got to evaluate false teachers and don't follow them. So even within that chapter, he tells us to make sound evaluations. What he means there is, don't forget you're a sinner too. You're no different than anyone else. That's what judge not, lest you be judged means. You're, you're the same. I guess that's what I would say. doesn't mean that we're not allowed to say, you shouldn't commit adultery with your secretary and blow up your marriage. I don't think that's judgmental. That's telling somebody the truth, isn't it? I mean, that's, you're going to blow up your world. That's evil. Don't do that. Anyway. All right, so if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. So if you say this statement, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh. I'm confessing that. I'm confessing Jesus as Lord. He's not just anybody. He is my Lord. 
I'm, I'm, I'm yielding to his authority. I'm, I'm taking my neck and putting it under his yoke. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light, but I'm going to follow him. I'm going to obey him. If you love me, you'll obey me, Jesus said, because you know who I am. I'm Lord. So Jesus is Lord. That's what it means. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised, raised him from the dead. So we don't need to be too meticulous about verse 9. I think you're also supposed to believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And it's fine to confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead. You can mix and match these things. But the point is, from the inner being, you believe the facts of the gospel. I think that's what it is. Does that make sense? It's not just that one thing. It's from your heart you believe who Jesus is, what he did, his death on the cross, his resurrection. You believe all that is true, and you appropriate it for yourself. You'll be saved. And what Paul's saying here is that's not too hard to do. It's not a great work or great achievement. You won't be able to boast in it. There's no great achievement here. So looking back now, big picture, Romans 9, 10, and 11, the Jewish problem, they're on their way to hell, but it's not because this whole thing's too hard for them to do. That's the big picture. You know, this is a bit of a parenthesis here. He's saying, look, this is not a difficult thing for them. It's not like it's impossible to do. We're asking them to do something that nobody can do. It's right there. They've heard the guy. And he's going to say in a minute, you know, but, the, but I ask, did they, did they not hear? They heard. I'm going to ask, did they not understand? Look, the Gentiles didn't understand. And then God took away that un lack of understanding and made it clear to them. That's not the problem is that they didn't hear and they didn't get it is they just won't do it. They won't repent and believe, but it's not because it's too hard. So that's how I think this whole section functions in the three chapters. Does that make sense? Now, it's got other purposes. Like for us as evangelists and, and missions, it does have other purposes. But in the logical flow, it's to show that the Jews are not on their way to hell because this whole thing was too hard for them. It was too difficult. That's the point. It's the ease of this that he's, you know, he's picking up on Moses' language and say, if it was easy in Moses' day, it's even easier now that Christ has come and died and risen again. Does that make sense? So that's, that's just the flow here. But anyway, this is the confession that we have. We confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And then he goes on from there to say, it is with your, your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So why does he go into this whole heart and mouth thing? Why does he talk about heart and mouth? One's internal, one's an external expression that should be consistent. Okay. All right. Very good. Anyone else? What's the link between the status of the heart and the words of the mouth? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said there's a link between what's in here and what comes up out of the mouth. And in this case, this is a consistent link. All right. You're saying what you really believe. And so the speaking of it implies a lifestyle doesn't it? It's not hidden. You're not hiding it like, you know, Nicodemus and all that. You're hiding it in. It's like, you're going to say it. I believe this. I'm going to make a confession. And so you're, you're making this profession in front of people of what you genuinely believe. So with your heart, you believe this and that justifies. Okay. And then it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So I believe that the heart, the heart's action precedes any action of the mouth. 
that includes the so-called sinner's prayer, right? What is the sinner's prayer? Confession. Confession. Well, what would be an example of a sinner, the sinner's prayer that you do with the, like the gospel tract? You guys even know what a sinner's, the sinner's prayer is? You've heard about it. That's like the, that's the response in God, man, Christ response. You get them to pray the sinner's prayer. What does it sound like? God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I need the Savior. Jesus is my Savior. You know, whatever, something like that. So I, I'm, I'm in favor of sinner's prayers. I, I just don't write the script for the sinner I've been evangelizing. And when, when we get to that point in the response, they'll say, okay, well, what do I do? I want to, it's like, well, why don't, you, why don't you ask God for what you want? It's like, well, what should I say? What do you want? That's what I say every time. Well, I want to go to heaven, not hell. Then tell them. What else? Is there a problem? Yeah, I'm a sinner. We'll talk to them about that too. I'm not going to write your script for you. Just tell them what's in your heart. And then I listen to how they pray. But let's say it's a genuine sinner's prayer. It's a, it's a real deal. I have made the contention for years. Every genuine sinner's prayer is made by somebody who's already justified. Because by the time they articulate it, this has already happened in their heart. What's happened in their heart? They believed and are justified. It's got nothing to do with the prayer. The prayer is the first outward expression of it so that an evangelist like me can feel good about the time we shared together, <laughs> you know, and I can tell others that, yeah, they prayed the prayer and all that. And that's all good. I think it's good for them to start being out with it and be an open Christian. I think that's a good thing. But just understand the justification happened first inwardly. By the heart. It's the heart that justifies. You see that in verse 10? It's with your heart that you're justified. And then out comes the prayer, the sinner's prayer. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So that's the uh, stone I lay in Zion. All right. We are out of time. And we never finish. I don't understand. It's just sheer ineptitude on my part. But at any rate, Andy Wynn, would you close us in prayer, please? Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, just we thank you that you have made it by the grace of God easy to be saved. Because if it weren't for you, it would be impossible for us. We would not. We would. We just. We're not perfect. We're sinful people. And so, Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Christ, and uh, just ask that you equip us to uh, spread the, the life we have in you with all people, with people that, that we see this coming week. In Jesus' name. Amen.